Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. I'm your host, Parker Setacase. Today's episode is another in Tolkien, um, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, we're going to be talking about his philosophical theology, his Thomism, uh, Tolkien as philologist. Many of you won't know that he actually was a philologist by profession. Uh, even fewer may know what a philologist is. So we're going to be talking about that. And I have with me a very special guest, Yannick Imbert, uh, another Frenchman. And I figured since I pronounce it Parker's Pensies instead of Pensies, I better at least try and pronounce his name uh, properly. So it's, I mean, it's spelled Yannick Imbert or Imbert, but uh, Yannick Imbert, Imbert, Imber? Shoot, I already messed it up. But the the book is uh, from imagination to fairy, and uh, it is Tolkien's Thomist Thomist fantasy. So we're going to be mispronouncing a lot of stuff to so just get used to it. But uh, it's a, it's a new book. I'm excited for it. He sent it to me. It's a good book, and uh, we're going to be just exploring more on J.R.R.R. Tolkien. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon. You guys are awesome. Thanks to everyone who is buying Parker Spence's merchandise. Uh, you can find the link in the description, or if you're on YouTube, you can find that in the store tab. And uh, recently, uh, just for this podcast, or beginning in this podcast, we have YouTube memberships available. So maybe you don't like Patreon for whatever reason, uh, but you want to support the podcast. You can now do that directly on YouTube. So look at the membership tab. I'll, I will leave a link in the description as well. If you want to support the podcast, if you like it, if you have benefited from it, please consider becoming a Patreon patron or a YouTube member. That would be huge. Um, I could keep commodifying myself, but that's probably enough. Let's jump in with Yannick Imbert. Um, Imbert. I think it's Yannick Imbert. Uh, I'll ask him. Let's see. <clears throat> Yannick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. No, Parker. No problem. My pleasure to be here. Can you can you say your name for us in the proper way? In the proper way, Yannick Amber. Amber. Okay, great. And and uh, I I've been making it um, like a, a a prerequisite for all my French uh, uh, guests to pronounce the podcast name. Can you can you pronounce you know Parker's ah, pensées for us? Les pensées de Parker. Nice. Very good. Yeah, that's so good. Um, that's great. Well. So I have my pipe here so we can get started. I believe you have yours uh, with you right now. There we go. All right. Yeah. It's too long. It doesn't even fit the frame. Uh, it's so good. The Gandalf pipe. I got my Gandalf, my Gandalf pipe. Yeah. I almost came with a drink, but uh, since it's late already and I need to be coherent, so <laughs> that's great. I just had tea. Yeah. I actually had some tea too. Um, Yannick, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You, you, um, you, you did your PhD at Westminster. Uh, I think that was, I, f I forgot if, was that with Bill Edgar? Was he your Dr. Vader or uh, someone yeah, else? Yeah, correct. That was under Bill Edgar because, um, Dr. Edgar, so was teaching apologetics at Westminster until he retired just, um, a few months ago. Okay. Um, he's a visiting, was a visiting professor where I studied in France, in a oh. reformed seminary in southern France. Uh, he actually had been a teacher here, a professor here in France for about a decade in the, uh, in the eighties. Okay. So, uh, I knew him before coming to Westminster. So I studied under him. Yeah. He's That's a big awesome. part of why I said talking. Yeah. He's, he's the man. I love that guy. Um, oh, yeah. you, you, you're currently a professor of apologetics, um, man, fac faculty, faculty, uh, Jean Cal Calhoun probably, or Calvin in France. Can you, yeah. can you pronounce that for us? I, I was blown away actually to see that there's, uh, any John Calvin stuff in France. That's amazing. Faculty Jean Calvin. Yeah, there you go. Okay, in southern France. Yeah, uh, well, we got a little trouble when we uh, when we took this name because the the, uh, the seminary in Geneva thought that uh, they should be Faculty Jean Calvin, but ah. I mean, no, they're first, so <laughs> now, now it's us. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, so you did your PhD, I believe, on uh, imagination under Edgar. Is that right? Yeah, I did my PhD actually on Tolkien. Uh, okay. So the book is uh, is a reworking on my uh, on my PhD on um, really on on Tolkien's theory of of, of imagination. 
okay. um, of fantasy from from a reform, but mostly um, seeing him as a as a Thomas thinker, yeah, or Thomas writer, yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, and I'm excited to get into the details of the book. Um, uh, an interesting point that I came across was the different interpretations of Tolkien's philosophical theology. And you say, you mm-hmm. know, he's he's a he's a Thomist, and uh, I want to talk about this as well that he's a, a Oxfordian. Uh, Catholic or yeah. Oxfordian yes. Catholicism, but before that, yes. um, do, do you have the rest of the? Do you have other interpretations like on the top of your head you can introduce the uh, the audience to? I, I hadn't I hadn't really come across the different uh, the debate mm-hmm. on what he really is. I guess uh, honestly, you, you pretty much have all the spectrum from Tolkien being an agnostic to Tolkien being a more or less a pagan hmm. uh, and only a nominal Christian. Um, you have a Berlin figure or Flieger, I never really know how to pronounce the name, who's one of the top Tolkien scholars, you know, amazing, uh, woman, um, who argues that Tolkien, what you see in Tolkien's theology or, or writing is more a, a platonic or neoplatonic take on, yeah. on God. Yeah. Um, and you have everything in between. You have, uh, Tom Shippey, also like a, one of the big names who connects Tolkien more to, to the Augustinian, but via Boethius. Yeah. So a Boethian kind of view of, uh, of uh, mostly of uh, virtues and uh, good and evil. Um, and uh, you, have, uh, you have people who connect him to C.S. Lewis, and rightly so, and would say that, well, in a way, Tolkien is, um, if he's really difficult to place on the theological spectrum, um, it's because he's a mere Christian. Yeah. Uh, of course, personally, I think Tolkien would have hated that. Um, <laughs> right. But, you know, we, we, yeah. we see Lewis, and Lewis, Tolkien, you know, mere Christianity. So um, I personally think Tolkien would don't, wouldn't like the, uh, the mere Christian kind of um, right. like sticker. Yeah. Um, and they're the Thomist, which um, I would argue for. I'm not the first one to say that. I mean, the Thomist Tolkien has been on. I think the first one who connected Tolkien really to the Thomist tradition is Paul Carker in 1972, one of the early early scholarship. Um, so it's not new, but it was very low-key for a long while. Okay. Um, well, um, so what's fascinating is this idea of, of Oxfordian uh, Catholicism, mm-hmm. uh, Catholicism at Oxford. And you, you had some really nice quotes in there as well about how, you know, we're we're not uh, we're, we're Catholic because we went to Oxford or, or something along those lines. I thought that was so fascinating. Right. Can you can you help us uh, like fill in the backstory there? What's the deal with Oxfordian Catholicism? Sure. Well, the uh, the whole thing about uh, Oxfordian Catholicism for Tolkien uh, goes back to the uh, the great figure of John Henry Newman. Yeah. Um, and maybe our you know, auditors are not really familiar with uh, with Newman. Um, Newman was this great um, Anglican uh, teacher, great Anglican theologian, who uh, went over to Rome, as they would say at the time, uh, which means for them he converted to pretty much the papacy yeah. um, and was, was really uh, looked down for that. But uh, Newman began, be, became the, if you want, the, one of the greatest Catholic converts from Anglo, uh, from uh, Anglicanism, right. um, he was a great mind. He was an, a great educator, a, an amazing preacher, mm. uh, a great writer, uh, and he had this broad view of human life, informed by nourished by theology. Mm. Um, the wonderful thing with uh, Newman is um, uh, most of his life, a great part of his life, was spent uh, at Oxford or near Oxford. And it deeply, profoundly marked the Catholic life in Oxford. Hmm. Um, and that's why if you were a Catholic in Oxford, end of the 19th century, first few decades of the, of the 20th century, um, you lived under the shadow of Newman yeah. uh, and the, uh, the Tractarian movement, which was Anglican, but a few of them went to the Catholic Church. Hmm. Uh, so you had this, um, this fertile soil of Thomist understanding um, and Newman's understanding of, of Thomas, yeah. uh, which I think gave Tolkien a, like a great, 
a great perspective on on what it meant to be um, to be a Catholic believer. Yeah. So um, I wonder. I don't know Newman that well, though he's constantly pushed on me by my friends. And um, so I'll I'll get to it. But um, are there like are there like John Henry Newmanian uh, distinctives in in that type of of Catholicism that would be different than at a different school, even like you might find at Cambridge or something? Or so I think there are some aspects that are typical of Newman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure they are they are not found elsewhere, but they are very typical of his approach. Mm. Um, for example, one of his approach of distinctive was um, I really think this the the educational view of 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 learning. Okay. Um, he put a great stress on also on all the spheres of life being part of the same like theological life. Yeah. Um, in that, he kind of resembles uh, Abraham Kuyper on the Reformed Reform tradition. That. Yeah, it sounds like Kuyper. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that actually they they kind of like overlap in time. Interesting. Uh, Kuiper, Kuiper is slightly after, but there's something there. Mm. Um, the other distinctive in uh, in Newman, and so I talk about that in book. It's I'm always I can't say uncertain because I write about it, so I must be. At least a little bit certain <laughs> of what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. Uh, at least you, I hope so. But um, there's this notion uh, that uh, Newman developed that's called the elative sense or elative sense. Yeah. Um, which for him is is a way to show that you can you can be rational in your belief about God without having all the rational reasons for believing about God. There's kind of like a, a rational apprehension of God, okay. uh, even though you can't rationalize it yourself. Yeah. Um, and that's very distinctive to to Newman, okay. um, and you can find that in the uh, in his Apologia, uh, and in probably one of his greater, greatest work, which is um, uh, grammar, of, grammar of Ascent. Okay, Grammar of Ascent. Grammar of, grammar yeah. of Ascent. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like maybe um, like proto uh, planning or something. I wonder if Tyler McNabb. I think maybe Tyler McNabb has been working on something like that. So um, asking. Yeah, I think Plantinga in his uh, in his Warrant uh, trilogy mentions uh newman at some point okay uh but it's been long i i, I read planting about 15 years ago so i'm mm-hmm. not sure i would yeah. uh top of my head remember that but yeah uh, it wouldn't be surprising because it's same the same take on the uh, epistemological foundation or the justified belief right uh even if you cannot rationalize it it is rational by definition yeah yeah that's great well um let's keep let's jump back on to talking uh so he's this, you're making this case that he's an Oxfordian uh, Catholic, uh, Roman mm-hmm. Catholic. So um, maybe maybe I just want to jump into his language, actually. So like Tolkien's theory of language. Uh, while I was reading this chapter, I saw this guy, Max Mueller, uh, I think we'd probably say in, in English. Uh, and I was like, OK, this is fascinating. But then I you, you brought up the point that Tolkien like really disliked this guy. So it was I was like, mm-hmm. oh, so here's a new guy for me. Oh, wait, no, Tolkien didn't like him. Can you can you help us out? Like what what did what was um, some distinctives of Max Mueller? And then like, why did why did Tolkien uh, beef with him? Why did he disagree with him on his, his positions? Well, let's uh, let's give a bit of background. Um, when Tolkien um, became interested in philology, which is the um, the, the study of language in its origin and evolution and development, how language changed over time. Yeah. Um, when Tolkien became interested in that, there was a whole kind of like background of discussion, uh, academic discussion about what is language. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max Müller was a German born, but um, mostly British. Uh, his, his life was in Britain actually for most of his time uh, of his life. Um, Müller was one of the top scholar and the greatest influence in uh, in the theory of language. Uh, and Max Müller argued that there was a development in language from a, let's say, um, a diseased view of 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 what things are. Yeah. So you would have a metaphorical um, view of language at first. You know, people would just associate um, thunder to Thor, the god of thunder. Right. Um, and mythology grew of this association between a natural phenomenon and a god, because you can't explain it, so you put a god behind it. Mm-hmm. And myths uh, take that and elaborate on that. And you have all the great myths 
in Greece and in the Nordic myth that uh, Tolkien loved so much. Um, and that led Muller to say that, well, actually language um, is a disease of myth. Um, and Tolkien hated that. Yeah. Um, really, he said something uh, like this. I think it's in his, um, in his talk, Unfair Stories, uh, something like, you know, we can dispense with maximum theory of language and it's not a great, you know, loss. <laughs> um, I mean, Miller was the top guy. So, whew. Um, yeah. and Tolkien really disliked that because for him, uh, that's really, um, don't play the intimate link, uh, between metaphor and language. Yeah. Um, for Max Miller, Metaphor and language. I mean, language is rational, almost say scientific. So the metaphoric part of language is is due mostly to this like primitive way of thinking. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, and Tolkien didn't like that. Um, in, in rejecting this position, Tolkien also I was very influenced by uh, another guy named Owen Barfield, yeah. uh, who thought that uh, language in itself was metaphorical um and what's fascinating is you can also trace that in a, the great mind that was chesterton um and chesterton say that language did not be did not become uh metaphorical it was created so yeah um with the language of creation which is very essential for atomists like chesterton and then for Tolkien. so language in itself as a given in our human nature um, is metaphorical in itself. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't become so. It's not a disease. Yeah, I, I love that. And <laughs> and um, reading more uh, into your examination of Mueller, it was it was more and more obvious that it was like a very modern idea, like a, mm -hmm. a a modernist idea of you know let's be we need to be rigorous. We need to you know chop off yeah. all this extra you know fluff type stuff. And so it became obvious why like Tolkien would, would really, really hate that. Um, Very and, much so. and it just, yeah, it, it doesn't seem accurate actually. Like it, it, that would kill all the good stuff, uh, in language, uh, and, exactly. and metaphor and all the stuff that gives yeah. you know meaning to life. Yeah. We're not, we're not just, uh, yeah, we're not realized Turing machines of zeros and ones, but we can mm -hmm. speak richly about, about life. And that is essential to who we are so much so that like, um, Tolkien says, I, I believe you you quoted him in here that language is essential to man, or maybe it wasn't a quote, maybe it was just a summary summary of mm -hmm. his position, but language is essential to man. And I, I thought that was fascinating that you brought this point out, um, not necessarily through his tomism, but through his work as a philologist, and mm -hmm. that it, it, yeah. it, it happily yeah. matches up. Um, yeah. Can like why why think that language is uh, essential to to mankind? So I think the first uh, the first way to me, uh, Tolkien goes uh, by by that that conclusion uh, is only be first it's because he loved language himself, yeah. um, and by language Tolkien loved words first, mm. um, the way they flow, the way they pronounced. Um, some words that mean the same, um, some are more beautiful. Um, of course, it's personal aesthetics also, but Tolkien loved words. He loved language. And from this personal, intense love of language, uh, Tolkien just was was driven back to think about how language came to be such an essential part of what we do. Yeah. Uh, and his conclusion, it's, it's, it's very implicit, uh, but his conclusion is that we, we communicate, we, we love language so much, we use words so much, that it's because it's essential to us. Um, there is no other reason. And in a way, um, implicitly, what he does is also looking at all the explanations, possible explanations of the origin or meaning of language mm -hmm. and discards those that don't seem to be taking into account all our experience uh, and not, not just the scientific experience or the rational experience like Max Müller um, would, would like, but our personal taste. Uh, the diversity of language, the way they cross and interbreed almost, yeah. um, the way they develop, uh, all that goes back to the, we are, 
we are ling linguistic people. Uh, mm -hmm. That's who we are. Uh, we can't escape this basic fact. Um, I, I'm not sure we can theologically go much further than that. I mean, I would love to say that for Tolkien is be is because God is a community communicative being. Right. But uh, Tolkien is not a theologian, so we can't ask too much. Even though it would be very consonant with with his Thomism. Yep. But Tolkien doesn't go that far. But yeah. I, I think I think it's legitimate to go that far ourselves um, with what Tolkien's saying. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we are linguistic people. Yeah. We are made of words. That's so good. Yeah, and and we're. I I, I recognize and I appreciate the the uh, let's not put too much into Tolkien's mouth, but but yeah, the like the the pieces are there. Um, later mm -hmm. in the book, I grabbed uh, a quote from from his letters that you know he's saying God is the supreme artist and author of reality, and that's something that I've been. I've been working on mm -hmm. highly influenced by, you know, Kevin Van Hooser's theology mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. and, you know, communicative be being, um, uh, communicative theism, uh, you know, less, uh, or, or in spite of Paul Helms, like very strong criticism of that. But, um, yeah, like we're, God is a, a communicative being God, God created mm -hmm. by his word and he created us by his word in yeah. his image to be like him yeah. and to create worlds with words like Tolkien says in the, in his uh, acts of uh, subcreation. Yeah. And, and in that Tolkien is very, um, Thomist of the Chesterton brand, um, because Thomism comes through, you know, um, Newman and Chesterton yeah. uh, after that. Um, but I think Tolkien would say, uh, that we are communicative and linguistic beings because also, essential concept of analogy in, in Thomism. Um, I mean, um, maybe in every good, any good theology as a part of analogy, um, that's um, Etienne Gilson, the great neo-Thomist, uh, points that out in one of his books. Um, and I think Tolkien goes to the us being linguistic or language uh, people because God is a communicative, communicative being uh, by way of analogy, um, yeah. which, is, which is typical of a of a Thomist, um, no outlook. Yeah. Which, yeah, I, I, I love that point. I appreciate the point. I come to it because of, uh, because of like Van Til and mm -hmm. Van Til probably would have a different understanding. He would say that he had a different understanding of being, but, but we're, we're, what, what is in view here is analogical predication. And mm -hmm. I think we're all, yeah. you know, on board there because we want to respect the creator creature distinction. Um, right. and, and we, you know, yeah. if we call God an author of reality, we don't mean he literally wrote reality on a, uh, you know, in a Starbucks, okay. one reality, you know, one level yeah, 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 yeah. on a pen and paper. No, he uses word in a way we're derivative authors. He's the, yeah. uh, the original. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, it's like we, he's creator with sub creator. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yes. He creates with, with time and space, uh, through yeah. his word and we create with pen and, and paper or digits and keys, keystrokes. Yeah. Um, keystrokes now. Keystrokes. That's right. That's right. I'm actually trying to get back into, um, to, to writing letters uh, and and uh, using a fountain pen, I'm kind of nervous because I think I'm gonna get ink everywhere. But there's something about oh, the old timey, yeah. the old timey feel to it of mm -hmm. uh, you know putting your putting your words to paper. Yeah, um, I agree. I have my fountain pen somewhere. Oh, fantastic! Actually, uh, last year for my fundraising, I did uh, 50 uh, or 60 uh, cards by hand. My uh, my wrist was killing me at the end. Uh, yeah, I was, I was gonna ask. Not, yeah. you, not used to writing that anymore. Right. Right. Um, you, you talk about how Tolkien, um, there's, there's a couple different, there's at least two different ways to do philology. Uh, one is like purely formal and that's just studying language. And another is mm -hmm. like an aesthetic way, which is like the actual mm -hmm. love of language and how Tolkien did both. Um, I, I don't know why I have this view. Maybe just from listening to people talk about Lewis and Tolkien in my head, Tolkien seems like he's kind of a curmudgeon. Uh, and, and Lewis was like the real jovial one, but I'm, that's probably wrong. But when I, when I think of Tolkien and all like the beauty that he creates, mm -hmm. it's like, man, this, this guy's so funny because he doesn't, he seems like he might be kind of a grouch, but then he makes all these beautiful, uh, characters and he has poems and songs in all of his works. Like what the heck's going on? So he did really have this aesthetic way of loving language yeah. as well, even in yeah. his work. Um, can you, can you help us out with that distinction between, you know, the aesthetic way of loving language versus like purely formal mm -hmm. studying language? 
Yeah, so Tolkien came first in philology uh, through a personal love language. So for him, the aesthetic pleasure, yeah. the, the intense personal pleasure uh, in language was always first. Um, very early on, his mother, uh, Mabel Tolkien, um, kind of like fed him books. And through the books, um, behind the stories uh, or over the stories that he read, the words were like bringing back to a world that was constantly expanding. Mm -hmm. um, and Tolkien's imagination was really like fired up by words, not first ideas for stories like many writers do uh, these days, but first about words. And from a word, a whole like world came up, mm -hmm. um, which is by the way, um, how he created the world of Middle-earth. Uh, it's, it's first through words, language, songs, poems, and the story was almost the the epiphenomenon. Huh. Um, it, yeah. It's what you see, but the the, the heart of the planet Tolkien is words. Um, mm. So of course he had to do the formal philology studies, um, which Tolkien never says that, but in a way I think was a little bit of a bore for him uh, huh. because it was always separated from what gives us or should give us love of, of, of words, which is literature, what, what we make with that, stories. Right, um, right. And um, in that, he was making a common cause with Lewis. And Lewis and Tolkien had this great plan, which was never to see the light of day, to bring back um, language and literature, lang and lit, back together at Oxford. Hmm. Uh, not as completely separated departments, independent departments, but hand in hand. Um, and I think Tolkien's issue, one of Tolkien's issues was uh, the formal way of doing philology was almost like too technical. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's why, in a way, Tolkien, I don't want to give him less credit, but he, he almost did not fully take his place as a philologist in Oxford. Mm. I mean, he was procrastinating. He was always you know, pushing to later what he should do um, mm. as a philologist. Um, why? Because he was connecting philology to the love of language and to the love of stories. Mm. So e every time he would just veer back to his <laughs> own project. Um, and philology for Tolkien is it's middle earth. That's what the philological project should be. It, it drives us back to stories. Yeah. Um, because philology, just by itself, with that connection to human life embodied in stories, I can't say it's meaningless, but you're, you're missing the the embodied you know, language. Yeah, that's <laughs> such a, a fascinating concept. Uh, and in our you know modern downstream of the bifurcation between Lang and Lit, it seems weird to think, yeah, why would a philologist be like a good storyteller or orator? But, but going back before that, it's like, we, if you know how to use words, then you ought to be able to use words well in telling mm -hmm. stories. So it's really yeah. fascinating that those two came together in in guys like Lewis and Tolkien. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the fact that they were split apart is, is pretty sad, though I think I, I think it happens in, in a lot of disciplines. And I, I kind of find a, a similar bifurcation in philosophy today, mm -hmm. where you have, um, you know, philosophy for your peers uh, as an academic where it's mm -hmm. super duper technical. And, and I understand yeah. that it needs to be at some times, but then there's like public facing philosophy. Right. And the, right. the, the, those often who are very good at public facing philosophy can't do the, the hard work of, mm. you know, spelling it out uh, technically. And those who do it technically are so worried about, you know, all the, uh, the their peers just yeah. raking them over yeah. the coals that they can't say anything to anyone else. Yeah, I think you find that in pretty much every field of human knowledge these days, yeah. Um, it's what a, um, a, theo a French theologian, but it, probably well-known in the U.S., maybe less now, Jacques Ellul, um, was calling the, uh, the reign of, of the experts. Yeah. And there's always okay. this over-specialization to the point that you, you, you're like closed in a small world, completely detached from everything else. And yeah. in theology, honestly, in theology, you see that be between these great division between the biblical department and the uh -huh. theological department. Right. Um, and it's almost like independent realms. 
mm-hmm. um, as if biblical scholars were not doing theology and theologians were not doing biblical theology. Yeah. But it's completely separa- separated and very technical and very everybody has its own expertise and you can't there's no integration of of knowledge, which is yeah. tragic. And I think that's what Tolkien and Lewis were uh, trying to fight against, but yeah. um, not sure that really worked. Yeah, that is. That is I mean, that, that didn't. No, I know it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's 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 a it's a noble project, and mm-hmm. I I don't want to only you know put the blame on the the shoulders of the academics because um, I I know the work and I've 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 done it myself. Mm-hmm. And some things are really, really, yeah, right. There's some things are really hard to say. Yeah, so part of yeah. the blame is is also on the audience, the the public, mm-hmm. the laity, who aren't willing to to dive in deep and say, look, this maybe I have to read this three times. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. we do. So what? You know, like let let's mm-hmm. do this. We but we both have to kind of meet in the middle. Um, right. So it's just an encouragement to the to the lay audience listening. Like, actually, the people who are doing it right now, they're they're already doing it. So they that's part of the reason for the podcast is to bring that's, it down. That's from the true. Top if you're listening to uh, if you're listening to the podcast, it's uh, you might Good have job. to uh, yeah, might back, go back to the dictionary. Sometimes I have to go back to my dictionary when I listen to podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Good for the brain. I'm, Good for the brain. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Um, so. <clears throat> Maybe we've already broached this uh, and discussed it or not, but but uh, in the book you have this subsection on you know Tolkien's um, what Tolkien took to the main task of philology. Hey, you know, do you think that we've covered that already, or maybe we can just say it more succinctly? Like, what what did Tolkien take to be the main task of philology? I think Tolkien took as the main task of, the, of philology to explain the the historical development of words. But also to to show that that words were always embodied in a culture and in a history, um, and Tolkien did that in very specialized uh, monographs, uh, which I try to read. And at some point, I'm just you know what I I don't know this stuff. I can't understand this stuff. Yeah. But uh, you find Tolkien's um, view of philology. Mostly in uh, in his in his imagination in his fiction, mm. uh, you find it in the Silmarillion, but especially in the Lord of the Rings with all the different languages, yeah. and you see Tolkien's definition of, of philology when you connect his formal training in philology to language in Middle Earth, hmm. and you always have this um, this notion in Tolkien that there is um, almost enclosed in in words so philology you have almost enclosed in words the whole culture of the person speaking um and it's something very strange for us because we are very um we have abstracted words and a word in french a word in german a word in english um has only a meaning so we connect the word and meaning it's already great because uh tolkien was also um uh, contesting the view of uh, of some you know, contemporary um, philologists in his time yeah. that were completely dissociating word and meaning and would say like um, word and meaning are arbitrary. You, know, you can put a word on a different meaning, no problem. Uh, yeah. right. Tolkien was objecting to that. Uh, he was objecting mostly to uh, Ferdinand de Saussure. Um, I have no idea how you would pronounce his name in English. So <laughs> Maybe maybe many hearers know 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 this guy, but can you say it again? English translation: uh, yeah. Ferdinand de Saussure. Okay, so someone maybe can uh, can make sense of that. Yeah, yeah maybe. So, but the detachment of words and meaning. So Tolkien reattaches both, but okay. more than that, and the fascinating thing about Tolkien is, in a word, in a language, uh, you see the the development of a culture. Yeah. And for example, um, there's this passage, fascinating passage, beautiful passage, but very brief, where um, you guys might remember where Mary is with King Theoden at the opening of the last volume of the book. Mm-hmm. And they are going towards uh, Edoras or Ben Harrow. Um, and they see this puggle man. Um, and the, the writers of, of Rohan are talking and singing poems 
um, which by the way, every great culture, that's my dog, he's not happy. <laughs> uh, he wants to come in. Um, <laughs> mine you, have, you, you, you have a dog, you know that. That's right. Um, so yeah, every great, every great language and culture in uh, Lord of the Rings has songs and poems, which say something. But yeah. so you can hear the, the, the men of Rohan uh, singing. He doesn't understand a single word they're saying, but it connects the way it sounds, so the words, and the, this love of words, to the country itself. And he say that the, because a word, a language, is so embedded in a culture, in a country, almost in a geography, uh, Mary says, or talking points out that for Mary, the language of the Rohirrim was like the country itself, full of rolling hills and streams. Hmm. And that's a fascinating take on philology. It's not just about the word itself. It's about everything that the word, that the word describes. Yeah. And the word is also coming from us being able to inhabit a time and space. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's so remote from anything we know, because to say that the geography of a land impacts the development of a language seems completely completely random. Right. But you find that in Tolkien over and over again. Yeah. Language say something about the place your place you inhabit. Do you think that that extends uh, merely to words or also to like the pronunciation and affect and, and uh, uh, accent? Um, so I think that that will show up in dialects and accent, uh, accents. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure we see that exactly in Tolkien. Sure. Um, or actually, it doesn't say that, but um, you have... Is it Tolkien who says that, or is it a study on Tolkien? Um, I'm not sure. But in The Hobbit, where there's this uh, episode of the, the dwarves and, and, um, and Bilbo, uh, being captured by the trolls. Uh, well, the the interesting thing is, I think the way Tolkien um, spells out the English of the trolls um, is kind of like brings back the the London accent oh. uh, in English. Okay. Um, so I'm, if I'm right, I'm not really sure what that means for Tolkien to compare. <laughs> English in London to you no know, trolls. Right. Um, maybe for the guy in Oxford, it's kind of like a, you know, a little like yeah. joke, inside yeah, joke. Yeah, right. Um, so I think you find that in Tolkien, you no know, words and pronunciation, it's it's all mo- like molded together yeah. through the life of the people who inhabit and speak. Yeah. Uh, but but it's completely foreign to us. Yeah. It, um, it, it, I think it's intuitive if you explain it to people. And depending mm-hmm. on where you're from, I guess, but you know, like certain English accents, because there's a billion of them, yeah. even all around London, certain ones have oh, this yeah. like English gentleman, and you're like, man, just keep talking, whatever you say. Uh, a lot of us really feel that way about you guys, you, you Frenchmen. Though I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's different, you know, there's different types of French. Um, oh yeah. You you sound a lot like Guillaume Bignon, who I've had on a few times, and I'm wondering if you guys are from uh, a similar place, or if that's just my, you know, American ear not being able to pick out. Do you, are you, you know, familiar I, with him? I, I, well, I'm familiar with the, with the name. We never met. Um, I can't remember where Guillaume is from. I thought he was actually originally from Quebec, but no, he, he's I not. Think he's right? from Paris, maybe. He's from Paris. Um, well, inside, I mean, personal thing. Um, Paris is it's a different country, man. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. I'll have to ask him again. Um, I, I got Lyon in mind, but maybe not Paris. Um, where where are you it, from? I guess Yannick. Um, I'm from a place called Valence, which is, um, well, Lyon is the, the second or third city in France, and I'm slightly my parents are slightly south. Okay. So that's where I grew up. Uh, but now I live in southern France, almost on the coast near Marseille. Okay. Um, so I don't have the accent of the south, but right. the south have a very very strong accent. Okay. So, I, you, so you, you, can't, you can't miss it. You know someone is from here because of the accent. <laughs> yeah. I have, a, I have a Chicago accent, and it's, it's kind of, as I think about it, as I've been reflecting on what you've been saying, it's, it's like uh, we're Midwesterners, so we're not, 
we don't pretend. Uh, we, we think we don't pretend. We think we're just, you know, we're, we're average people. We're from, I'm from Chicago, right? So it's like, it, it does play out in our accent and it's actually kind of hard for me to do, um, like high level academic stuff sometimes in my head where I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm just this Chicago <laughs> accent. Like it's all nasally and stuff. it's, it's really funny. I, I, sometimes I long for that English accent, but, um, that's really, it's really fascinating to, to reflect on the fact that like your surroundings shape the way you well shape the way you think and in turn mm -hmm. you know your your language and and the community mm -hmm. you're born into as well yeah and, and the, the community geography. yeah 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 the, the geography for me is the most fascinating part of what Tolkien's saying mm. um yeah. you know how does the rolling hills of rohan created or help create mold the language yeah um yeah. that's fascinating yeah, I, I don't have the answer because I, I'm not a philologist. I came from a biological you know, background. So, yeah. um, but but that's uh, that's a great insight, I think. Yeah, definitely something to, to be chewing on. Um, <clears throat> I I I can't not talk about Tolkien's mythopoeia or mythopoesis because uh, it's just it's it's really prominent and it's kind of mm. like the deep take on him. It's really it's really fun. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that, that was new to me from your book was um, Tolkien as mythographer of England. I, I don't know that I was yeah. familiar with that at all. Can you help us, like uh, the myself and the audience? What, what does that even mean? So um, I placed Tolkien in the great tradition, uh, especially in the 19th century, of those, um, and they were not necessarily scholars, but who would try to um, gather all the myth, stories, legends, and tales of a specific country, mm. bring them back uh, and be nourished by that and sometimes create something new. Um, you find that in, uh, in Germany, for example, with the, um, the Brothers Grimm. Yeah. So we know all the, the green tales and all, but behind that, there was this great vision by the two brothers to collect the tales and in doing doing so, doing like a, a mythography, really like the writing of the myth of and the legends that came to to nourish uh, German culture. Uh, of course, for them there was um, something essential about the 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 distinctive of a typical German culture at the time. They wanted to give Germany a specific tale, a specific nourishment, going back yeah. to those states and legends that now we have um well, i don't know if uh, many of us have read the grim stories we um we're familiar with the uh, disney take on it but uh um the original tales are often they're rather grim uh no pun intended but they really are rather grim sometimes uh, mm. um you find that with uh, elias lanard also in uh, in finland so mm. gathering this like great number of tales and legends in a way Tolkien doing the same uh, but he's actually not doing it by going around the country and collecting all the tales yeah. but he's doing that as as a sub creator um, and Tolkien is a mythographer in a, in a sense because he's looking back at the at the created or sub created history uh, almost like England is coming from Middle Earth and what huh. Tolkien does is is placing himself Tolkien not as a writer of the Cimmerian and the Hobbit and Middle Earth, but is is seeing himself as gathering all those poems and tales that came through us through history in England. Yeah. Is gathering them and is presenting it as well. Here's what the tales were. Uh, before England was Christian, right? Um, it, it's a pre-Christian age that is um, is uh, drawing on that he completely created. Um, so he's a he's a sub-creating mythographer, if you want. Yeah, yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, <clears throat> so that means that uh, though it's pre-Christian, it is still needs to be in accord with like old testament theology is is that right for, for Tolkien? uh so uh yes and no okay. um in a way no because it's um 
it's a, it's a distinctive mythology, okay. which is not directly connected to the Old Testament, which mm-hmm. is the tales and the, and the revelation given to a specific people in ancient East. Yeah. But in a way, it's still the same God of the Old Testament. Okay. So it's not the same stories, but it's the same God. Yeah. Um, and in a way, you can say that the God of, of Tolkien's fiction is the God of the, of the Christian or the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, even to an extent, the Trinitarian God that you see more fully revealed in the New Testament, right. um, can, be, can be seen, discerned in Tolkien's mythology. Um, you yeah, have with to the pay secret fire. To what it, yeah, the secret fire. Um, uh, you have this, well, this this relationship between the creating God who sings creation to being, mm-hmm. which I always thought is a great also insight into the nature of creation. I thought that's um, really good. I, you know, sometimes I would like. I wish almost that the Old Testament, that Genesis 1, <laughs> used the verb singing yeah. instead of creating. But, okay, I don't want to... Um, I, I asked Chris you... Wiley about that, and, and he said, you know, he, he quoted the music man and said, well, just, uh, you know, the, as the music man says, <laughs> singing is just sustained talking. And I was like, man, that's pretty, that's pretty fascinating. So there's a way to kind of you know, fudge it. In our, you, you could yeah. say that it's melodious talking. Yeah, yeah. That's good. And you know, some people the way they talk is it's it's almost it's rolling and it's it's close That's how to we, singing. You you sound like that to us, and uh, you sound like and and um, certain dialects of of Chinese. Uh, mm-hmm. Like when I was mm-hmm. in seminary, like all the all the Chinese girls were amazing at at Greek and Hebrew, which is hilarious because they're learning it in their third language already. You know, they're learning it in English. Yeah. They're learning, and I'm like, how are you guys so good? But but the way they talk, their inflection is is also like sing songy. So right, right, right. Yeah, so I so like but yeah, there is um. So there is a clear connection. Clear. No, I think it's a clear connection between the God of the Bible, Old, Old okay. Testament, and Tolkien's. I don't want to say Tolkien's God because his God is the God of the Bible also, but okay. the the um the God of his created mythology, mm-hmm. um, is the same as the, as as our God. Except yeah. he has another, he has another, another name. He doesn't present or reveal himself in the same way because sure. it's a different culture. It's a pre-Christian, pre-English mythology. Yeah. Um, you know, creating the elves, the dwarves. I would argue that Eru Ilevatar created the hobbits um, by a direct act, but that's my crazy, <laughs> semi-heretical. Um, view of uh, of the origin of the hobbits, okay, um, which would lead us too far into <laughs> Tolkien himself. But uh, yeah. I wrote that the first time for my um, my THM here in France on good and evil in uh, in the Lord of the Rings, and uh, oh, nice. Um, that's, that's so I would make the case that the hobbits are a direct creation of uh, of God in uh, in Tolkien's mythology. Would would that be <clears throat> would that help explain why they're so uh uncorruptible so it's so difficult to corrupt them with the ring's power and such so um the hobbits are kind of a mixed bunch mm-hmm. uh because they they can they can be easily deceived and at the same time there's a strength that you would not suspect yeah so odd. um you know who resists as a culture who resists the most to the influence of Saruman, uh, it's a habit. Uh, clearly, it's a habit. Yeah. Um, and the, I, you could almost argue that the reason why the habits are the, the strongest in, in, in resisting to, uh, to the power of the ring um, is their Thomism. Uh, <laughs> but one, one expression Tolkien is using again and again to uh, to talk about the um, the almost the uh, the philosophy of life of the hobbits, it's their common sense, uh. and common sense for Chesterton, which is one of the great guys that Tolkien like draws upon. 
Chesterton in his uh, biography of Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, the dumb say that, Yeah, the Thomism is the philosophy of common sense. Fascinating. And, and, and I, I can't right help but line. wonder. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I can't help but wonder why can Sam, of all the people who come into contact with the with the ring, can be tempted by the ring in Mordor and resist the power of, of the ring. In that, he is superior to uh, to Tom Bombadil, who is not tempted by the ring. Yeah, and he wasn't yeah, in it, Mordor, right? No, and he's not tempted. Oh yeah, right. No, the, the, so we, he... we we don't feel in in Tom Bombadil, we don't feel any attraction to the power of the ring. Sam does. Yeah. And why can he give up the temptation? Uh, because he sees himself as who he is. Hobbit common sense. Uh, he's just a gardener. He loves being a gardener. Uh, uh, that's his calling. That's his vocation. That's who he's made to be. And he's recognizing that that's who he's, he's made to be. He mm. doesn't have to be the great hero of the age. And actually, I would argue that he, he is the hero of the, the, hero of the age. Right. Um, actually, for Tolkien... Um, for Tolkien, Sam is Galahad in uh, the Circle of the Grail, okay. one of the greatest knights. So it says something for who Sam is. Um, it, it's common sense. Um, it, it, Sam is the tummiest of the of the bunch because wow. things are real. You cannot change reality, and to recognize what reality <laughs> is and take your full place within it. Um, that's one of the real strengths of Thomism for Tolkien. Um, and I think that's why the Hobbits, and some in particular, can resist so much the, uh, the, the corrupting influence of the ring. That, that's such a profound lesson, um, and it, it harkens back to St. Paul. You think of yourself with sober mm-hmm. judgment. Um, yeah. it, it, it harkens yeah. back to, to Joseph, who's, whose brothers say, you know, please don't kill us now that our father's dead. And he's like, am I in the place of God that I can do that? Mm-hmm. I'm not God. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. man, if, if all of us thought this, oh, we wouldn't be in the place that we're in right now. But, you know, even in mm-hmm. our daily lives, look, I'm not God. I am a creature, you know, a creature of dust yeah. in God's image. Yeah. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not a cockroach, but I'm also like, I'm not him. How, yeah. how good would that be for us to remember, to remember that every day? And to think of ourselves as sober judgment, to, to, to think of ourselves accurately, you know, God has gifted me in certain areas, but I'm not him. I'm not going to extend that out. And I'm not, I don't have to be gifted at everything. Like, yeah. What a yeah. humbling, like good. Oh man, that's so good. Yeah. Takes your cue from Sam. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, he's, he, he really is a hero of, uh, of the Lord totally. of the Rings. Totally. Uh, it's Sam. Yeah, that's so good. Well, <clears throat> Um, it, it it brings us to another uh, another thing that you you bring up, uh, which is the relation of myth and history with truth. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're we're modernists. Uh, many of us were like downstream of of all this good stuff, and we've somehow uh, you know, bifurcated, separated like myth from truth, and then we like worship myth in 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 our you know in our Marvel stories mm-hmm. and our DC yeah. stories. Um, yeah. and, and, and we spend tons of money for, you know, we, we stay up all night for Thursday night, uh, premieres, all this kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. we think like, no, we've, we've got the truth on our side. What, what, what yeah. is the relation? Yeah. What's, what's the relation? And can we bring it back to like, can we reflect on, on Tolkien's, uh, connection and, and maybe gain something back that we lost? Yeah. So Tolkien called the uh, myth refracted truth. Mm. Um, it, it is a, it is a splintered truth because in a, we live in a fallen world. Yeah, but there there is something of this broken mirror, uh, refracted truth. Um, yeah. he, um, the interesting thing is that Tolkien writes about that in a, a long poem, Mythopoeia, yeah. uh, which he actually wrote in answer to Lewis before Lewis became a believer. Yeah, um, and uh, maybe you guys uh, know that, but uh, if you don't, well, here it is. Yeah. Um, Tolkien was probably the most instrumental in bringing uh, Lewis to uh, to the Christian faith, mm-hmm. um, and Le- Lewis tells a great deal about how he came to the faith. But there's something that remained a bit obscure. We know that this poem was addressed to Lewis, who maybe like us, like our current age, is very prone to have its own mythology. I mean, World Cup just ended. The Soccer World Cup just ended. Right. 
Well, that's typical mythology. We have our heroes. Well, I'm French, so of course now we have our semi-gods, um, yeah. all those guys. Um, but, you know, so we love a story where, say, the French team is down like 2-2-0. Two, two, it's yeah. 10 minutes from the end, and you're like, well, you know what? They are dead and buried. Yeah. And 10 minutes later, it's 3-3, three, three, and yeah. it's a shootout. Yeah. Of course, we died. We died then. But the point is, two zero ten minutes from the end, end of the World Cup. There's no way you come back. And then there's a like resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what Tolkien was saying to Lewis, and he would say the same to us, is, you guys are are more irrational than any primitive man you can even imagine, because you you are completely taken in this like modern football myth where. Yeah a team can be down and dead in the water and then suddenly rise back from the dead. But when you say, hey guys, no, there's also a man who was dead and rose from the dead because he was God. That is nonsense. Right. Uh, and talking would say, that's completely, that's irrational. You disconnect myth and truth where clearly myth and truth are connected because mm. even our modern myth points out that in every myth, there can be something driving us back to God's revealed truth and God himself, who is the truth. Um, and, and that's why I it's so compelling to see to see the, the comeback yeah, because we yeah. it's deep in us. It, it resonates some truth of reality. Exactly. And yeah. Tolkien would, this, this um, for me, the, the most wonderful book by Tolkien Maybe the yes, I think um, is uh, is essay on fairy stories. Yeah, because at the end you have Tolkien fully embracing what he loves, which is language and myth, mythology, stories, and he brings that fully into the realm of theology mm-hmm. of God, mm-hmm. um, and he say that actually in Christ, myth and history are one thing. And Christ is the historical myth. Hmm. It's not an invention. It's not a lie. It is myth that has become fact. And this line is just the, I mean, Tolkien is not a theologian. He always said like, no, he doesn't do theology. Uh, Good gracious, if that's not theology, I don't know what it is. Uh, Um, It's an amazing amazing passage. So if you guys have not read Unfair Stories, um, the first part is a bit maybe boring for someone who's not aware of what Tolkien's doing, but as he goes along, especially toward the second half of the of the essay, especially the conclusion, um, it's baptized imagination. Yeah. Uh, pretty much. So truth and, and myth. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I've, I've, like you said, like if this isn't theology, then I don't know what it is. I believe that's where he he gets into like subcreation and stuff, right? Correct. Yeah, his conclusion is pretty much subcreation. Yeah, which um, is like that's and, that's a doctrine of 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 man right there. Like that is, like like what, it was, what does it mean to be a mago day? Well, that's a big part of it. You know, I, it's you can never say this it. is everything because then some it'll exclude someone. But it's like that's a huge chunk of what it means to be a human. We create because we are yeah. created creators, subcreators. Yeah, uh, and truth is always around us. Yeah. Um. So that's my way of put, of putting it, but. Even when a myth is completely disconnected from, say, the Christian story, mm-hmm. uh, there's, we cannot escape the world that God has made. Yeah. Um, whether, even right. if we want it, even the, the, the most ultimate atheist will take inspiration from the world around him. And even the greatest atheist, um, even Nietzsche, if he was the greatest atheist, um, will say something that is actually true because you cannot escape God's world. Yeah. So the, the truth of God is all around you. You can't do without it. Yeah. You can't do without I, it. I, I think that's so fascinating. And I, uh, that that's messed with me a little bit when I was younger, <sighs> thinking about how I can, I can never really create anything um, mm-hmm. because I always have to pull from something else. And it's like, well, uh, what about like a unicorn? No, someone else already thought about that. What about like a, a bear with a horn? Uh, 
And it's like, no, uh, that's yeah, just yeah. a bear. And you've added like a narwhal tusk. Like yeah, yeah. That, that's God's thing. You're, you can subcreate, you can mix and match, but you, you can't make whole cloth the way that he did. Yeah. Like into yeah. We can imagine, we can imagine, but we, we cannot create. Yeah. Um, and that's another part of Tolkien's whole theory of uh, the theory of, of imagination, yeah. where even the greatest imagination, the greatest power of, of imagination is just a, um, a recombination of something already existent. Yeah. Um, maybe we recombine elements, like you can have a great new storyteller, yeah. uh, a great new writer, but the basic elements is dealing with um, will always be the same. Yeah. Um, that that's so that's so fascinating, and that it it's kind of <clears throat> actually this has actually helped me realize uh I, I was watching his dark materials and um oh uh, yeah gonna, yeah i was gonna read the book and and something that kind of sullied it for me was the fact that he's like this is an anti-narnia and and it's it's a little on the nose and it's like oh man yeah you're telling a lot of the same stuff you're getting some stuff right this is really cool but your <laughs> agenda is like really on display and it doesn't seem like it's mm -hmm. the same here's a world and now here's a story from this yeah. world. It's yeah. like, here's yeah. a story from a different world. I'm going to try and counteract that. And it's like, yeah. yeah. So even though it's got the same uh, elements, not all stories are, are equal. That, you know, that was my main complaint when I read Pullman the first time is, yeah. um, he's trying too hard to make his fiction in counter evangelism. Right. So I, I have a beef against Christians sometimes where we want to write, as Christians, but what yep. we really want to do is preach. Right. Um, so sometimes I tell my students, if you want to write, write. Be a good writer. Yeah. If you want to preach, preach, and be a good right. preacher. And it's almost like if Pullman is doing the same, but as an atheist, right. um, and, and is preaching his atheism. And honestly, at some point, it becomes it, it's so, and he does it in a very obvious way. Um, so I'm like, eh, you know, sure. Um, recently, I started re-reading, re um, I think she's a wonderful author, uh, Susan Cooper, The Duck is Rising, okay. uh, which um, has a lot, draws a lot of inspiration also from the Christian faith, but it's very, much more indirect, especially the first ones. Um, and, and I think that's, that's something that is so valuable, yes. to be able to be constantly nourished from your own like, view of life. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that a story has to be Christian to be, to be a good story. Um, even though Tolkien kind of like goes that direction in unfair stories, because yeah. he said that a good fair story has recovery, um, recovery, escape, and, con and consolation. Yeah. Uh, and for him, all those three elements are incarnated or embodied yeah. in Christ. And he said that Christ is a fair story of, of uh, is a, Christ is our fair story. Yeah. Uh, which is also a great way to summarize what the gospel is. The gospel right. is the fair story of humanity. Mm. So good. So some, some people will, will point that out and say, well, you know, that's just uh, a hero with 10,000 faces or whatever. And, and that's like, Oh uh, yeah. Uh, Campbell. Yeah. 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 Joseph Campbell. Yeah. yeah that's, Joseph uh, Campbell. It's an, it's an archetype archetype and that's why it's happening. But, but mm -hmm. I'm following, following like Tolkien in, in Mythopoeia, like it's, it's an archetype because that's the way reality is. So like you guys, mm -hmm. those who would, would want to counteract that or counterman that or like, you know, counter argue it, um, they're missing that it could be if, if there is no God, then it could be, but you're assuming that there is no God and then putting forward, you know, this explanation of how we could all think this way when really mm -hmm. the question hasn't been settled. Cause we can equally explain that and say, because there is a God, this story resonates with us because reality is this way. We find it in yeah. uh, really intriguing uh, football soccer matches, you know, like because it's yeah. a resounding throughout all of reality. That's why it works. Not just because it's a, you know, a mind virus or something like that. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, in a way, Joseph Campbell is right on many on many things, and is there an archetypal story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's God's right. story. Right. So, sure. I mean, not to say that Joseph that Campbell's um, archetype of story is the correct one. Sure. But if the question is, 
to say like, well, you know, if you look at other stories, there is commonality in other stories that's an archetypal story. Um, yeah, and why should it right. be wrong? Why should right. we? Why should it be false? Yeah. Um, it's not because they all resemble each other that they're false. Um, which, by the way, is a great, um, it's a great argument by atheists these days where if all faith resemble themselves, if they all have common practices like prayer, that means that they are either false or all the same. Um, why? <laughs> um, yeah. No, why? No, it means that they're, it all, it all drives us back to a common creation, a common nature. Mm. Um, Again, I'm talking as a theologian. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so good. I think, I, yeah, talking as a theologian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, y Yannick, this has been this has been awesome, man. Um, I I have benefited from the book, and I'm excited that it's okay. So there's a bunch of Tolkien books, and there's going to be more, and you can't. Stop oh yeah, it. there's always more. No. Yeah, but I'm I'm really glad uh, that the particular flavor that you give. And I was so glad to learn so much about um, philology in this book, and and to see some of some of Tolkien's uh, interlocutors or the people he he disagreed with, and and see so much of his influence. Yeah. I was really surprised by how influenced he was by uh, Owen Barfield. I thought that was really oh cool. yeah, Barfield was a major influence. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I recommend the book for the listeners. It's uh, Yannick Ambert or uh, <laughs> Yannick Imbert. Uh, but it's from Imagination to Fairy, Tolkien's Thomist Fantasy. Uh, it's it's a great book. So thanks thanks to the book. Thanks for giving me your time here. Um, thanks for your My French pleasure. accent. Anytime. Yeah, it's Anytime. Been fantastic. Yeah, definitely. We'll we'll have to get you back on to talk more. Um, in the meantime, sure. you, you got like a, a website or anything where, where people can find more of your work? Um, so I have a website, but it's in French. Uh, oh, I mostly uh, I mostly okay. that yeah I mostly do that in French. Um, so uh, you can try, but I, I don't <laughs> translate. Well, I mean, I usually do uh, all my stuff in French on my blog mm -hmm. because there, there's so much already in English. There's so yeah, you know, wonderful teachers and all that. Um, I'm not sure another voice would uh, mm. would add a lot. So I focus on the on serving the French uh, the that's French good. world. Yeah. Uh, but you never know. You never know. Yeah, that's really yeah, good. Maybe I'll be back in English. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, folks. Well, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. <laughs>